Right. It's like the Jews are the invisible hand pulling the strings. Interesting. And in this case, their hands had already been cut off. I was going to (laughs) say, if if they really had all that power, they probably would have implemented it earlier. That is always the response that I have to every anti-Semitic you know, idea or stereotype. If Jews had that much power, do you think this is what it would look like? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, there's no winning that debate. Welcome to Jewish History Nerds, where we do exactly what it sounds like. Nerd out on awesome stories in Jewish history. I'm Yael Steiner, and my childhood dream was to stay in school forever. I'm Jonathan Schwab, and I am in school forever. And I apologize if the audio sounds different for today because I am recording not in my usual location, but actually in the school that I am in forever. It's almost like we have full-time jobs. Yeah. Crazy. Schwab, I'm excited to hear what we're going to talk about this week. Great. I'm really excited also. We had a bit of a slight hiatus in our recording schedule, and part of that was there was so much to research about this topic. I'm excited. The Spanish Golden Age, also known as La Convivencia. That sounds very elegant. Yes. It's a remarkable period in history where, at a specific time and in a specific place, Medieval Jews had unparalleled and unprecedented freedoms and access within society, and they used those opportunities to create a flourishing of a unique type of Jewish culture. And this was taking place in Spain? Yes, correct. And the time? And the time, it definitely was no earlier than the 8th century, specifically the year 711, and it definitely ended by 1492. The real height of it was around the 900s and 1000s. So the 10th and 11th centuries, the early 12th centuries were, were definitely the best parts of it. That's a pretty long time. Yeah, this is multiple generations. This is a couple of hundred years in a country in Europe where Jews had a very different experience than they did elsewhere during those medieval times. How did Jews get to Spain? Love that you asked me that because we know that there are Jews in Spain going all the way back to the first century. And there's a couple different pieces of evidence for that. One of them, a callback to one of our old friends from season one, is that in the New Testament that Paul talks about among his many travels going to Spain. So we know in the time of Paul, there are already Jews in Spain. And then there are a couple of things not much later than that, a very old grave that says, you know, here lies this very young girl, daughter of this person who was a Jew, um, that we know how old the grave is, it's dated properly, and, and that's verified and everything. So we know Jews were in Spain from at least as far back as the first century, and that community grew over time. It's not like there was one huge wave of immigration. And they gained enough in numbers and in power that by the 8th century, they seemed to have a lot going on? Uh, yeah. So prior to the year 711, which is a very easy year to remember. If you're a fan of Slurpees, the area that we now know as Spain was largely under a series of kings for a couple of hundred years called the Visigoths. Mm-hmm. Heard of them. And the Visigoths converted at some point during their rule to Christian Catholicism. And as Catholics, they had it in for the Jews pretty bad. There was a lot of persecution. Jews had very few rights, were barred from a lot of things, and were very frequently punished for their infractions, and for whatever reason, the favorite punishment of the Visigoths was public amputation. Wow, that's really, really awful. Yeah, so that's the state of Jews in Visigothic Spain. 
prior to 7-Eleven, and they were not huge fans of the Visigoths. Understood. Yeah, for understandable reason. Starting in 7-Eleven, Muslim armies begin to invade Spain from the south, coming from North Africa over the Strait of Uh Gibraltar and taking more and more territory in Spain. Okay. And there's a whole question of what was the Jews' role in this Muslim conquest exactly. There's no question that the Jews definitely were happier with this emerging Muslim rule under which they seemed to have a much better position. Uh There was an accusation that took the form of something like the Jews have invited the Muslims and are now making it easy for the Muslims to sort of conquer all of this territory. They were helping. Yeah. They were definitely not hindering this Muslim conquest. They certainly were very open to rule by Muslims. We don't have a ton of evidence that they were, like, that invitation thing I don't think happened and, like, smacks a little bit of, like, an anti-Semitic trope to me that the Jews are, like, a fifth column in the country that's helping the enemies of the country. But I would think that it doesn't really matter who they're inviting or bringing in if they're living under persecution. Right. It's human nature to want to improve your life circumstance. Yes. Yeah, totally. I don't know. It reminded me of like a Germany interwar thing. Like, oh, the reason Germany lost World War I. Right. It was like the Jews are the invisible hand pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And in this case, their hands had already been cut off. I was going to (laughs) say, if if they really had all that power, they probably would have implemented it earlier. Yeah. But I understand where you're coming from. That is always the response that I have to every anti-Semitic you know, idea or stereotype. If Jews had that much power, do you think this is what it would look like? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, there's no winning that debate. So eventually, under this Muslim rule, they come to have a lot of access, I said. And one of the things that they're able to do is individuals are able to rise almost to the highest levels of arts, military, political fields, science, medicine, and at the same time, and very often those same individuals, are deeply invested and involved in the world of Jewish learning, Torah learning, scholarship, which is very rare. Usually it's one or the other, right? Like there are plenty of prominent Jews. Right. Like Maimonides, I'm assuming, emerges Uh, in this era. Maimonides is one of them. We're going to spend a little less time on him because I think He's better known, and there's so much out there about him. But, you know, I know that he was a physician and obviously one of the greatest Jewish scholars in history. Yes. So he clearly embodies that duality, which, as you mentioned, is really uncommon, particularly today in observant Jewish circles. There is a huge divide. Right. There are the incredibly learned Jewish scholars of the world, but by necessity or by design or or just by happenstance, they tend to be, if anything, very isolated from the world. Correct. And the reverse. There are Jews who are at the highest levels of medicine, science, politics, but usually they're not observant or certainly not like deeply involved in that world of scholarship you know, just trying to think about how we would explain this in present day terms. And I was thinking, okay, what if Joe Lieberman, who is a senator and 
vice presidential candidate and was a prominent Jew who was observant and talked about his observance. But imagine if, in addition to all of that, imagine if he also gave a Talmud lecture or had a podcast about Talmud that had tens of thousands of listeners because it was seen as one of the best lectures out there. And he was also treated as a rabbi of great renown and great scholarship. Right. We don't have too many, if any, symbols like that anymore. And sure, people will write in and be like, my rabbi is (laughs) also a doctor and he's amazing. Right. The flip side of this that I was thinking about is imagine if Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was an incredible Jewish thinker, who was able to articulate philosophy about Judaism that reached Jews and non-Jews alike and was appointed to the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. But imagine if, in addition to all of that, his appointment to the House of Lords came because he also had decades of not just military service, but military leadership. Like he had been a general in the army and was decorated. That's the type of thing that Jews were doing in Muslim Spain. Wow. Yeah. It's almost like if you don't have social media, you have time to really better yourself. That's why they had all the time, because they weren't busy on Twitter. And because there was so much less history to study. I think about that all the time. People living a thousand years ago had it so easy because so much less had happened already. Excuses, excuses. But I hear you. Going back. So we're in 7-Eleven. The Muslims come in. They begin to conquer parts of Spain. They refer to it as Al-Andalus. The area had been known as Andalusia, which is still Uh an area of Spain. The Muslims in Al-Andalus under their series of assumptions and rules about the way a society should be, they treat both Jews and Christians as a form of protected minority. They do not have all of the privileges that Muslim citizens have. They're considered dimi. Right. And they have to pay a specific poll tax, which is different than Muslim citizens. That's called a jizya. There's all sorts of rules that they can't, like a Jew can't sit higher up than a Muslim. Their synagogue cannot be built higher. Thank you for all of these things. Thank you to Jews in the lands of Islam, a course I took 10 years ago, and if memory serves, actually did quite poorly in. Well, you have a chance to make up for that today. I will send this podcast to Professor Tzadik and tell him, look where (laughs) I am now. Fantastic. So I actually think I knew that about the synagogues not being Mm -hmm. allowed to be higher than the mosques. I visited some really old synagogues in Spain, and a lot of them are built into the ground, Mm -hmm. below ground, and maybe for that reason. And also, you're not allowed to rebuild a synagogue if it fell down. But like many things, one of the reasons we know about all of these policies is that things were constantly getting published saying, we need to be stricter in our enforcement of these Uh policies, which a little bit sounds like... People weren't respecting them. It was happening. Yeah. So Jews and Christians are being treated pretty well. Yeah. And I guess that allows them to start building foundations for success. Yeah. And then it gets to the why of all of this. Like, what is it that was so different? Why is it that this functioned differently? Mm -hmm. And there's sort of two large theories that are probably both correct, but they're different ideas of like, why is it that this worked so much better for the Jews in this case, Uh and it didn't elsewhere. So the first is this notion of triangulation or a a triangular society, that this was 
a rare instance. There were plenty of other Muslim lands where Jews were Uh living under Muslim rule. But in most of those other places, there were very few Christians. And there were plenty of Christian lands. But in most of those places, there were very few Muslims. This is a rare example of a society where they're not equally proportionally represented, but there's certainly a large enough contingent of all of them that it feels like society operates around all three of these religions working at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. It's almost like they're a buffer. Yeah, right? So to some extent, it could be a buffer. I don't think that's the full, it's not, you know, oh, the Muslims were so busy oppressing Christians or dealing with Christians that they didn't have time to be anti-Semitic. Right, right, right. I think more along the lines of like, the whole society has to function in this diverse way. You have to Uh recognize multiple different perspectives and there isn't a binary of power versus oppression. Got it. There's like multiple constituents. And again, this is definitely a huge caveat here. When we say diversity or pluralism or respect, not 21st century versions of those things, right? but way ahead of their time for the 8th century, 9th century, 10th century. That's the first idea, explanation. The second is that, and again, this doesn't fully account for why this might not have happened in other Muslim lands, but that Jews under Islam is very, very different than Jews under Christianity. Christianity emerged from Judaism and was in, therefore, much greater conflict with it, needed to distinguish itself from Judaism in many ways, was much more threatened by Judaism, like burnings of the Talmud because of the things that the Talmud says about Christianity. The Talmud doesn't really discuss Islam, uh-huh. mostly because it wasn't around, I believe, at the time, most of the writing of the Talmud. But also it was just it Islam was less threatening to Judaism. Judaism was less threatening to Islam. The two religions are function much more similarly in terms of being based a lot more on on rituals and practices and uh-huh. behaviors and much less on faith and theology alone. Right. Man is not saved by faith alone. Yes. Yeah. So what were some signs of that flourishing of the Jewish community? For those signs, let's talk about specific people and their specific uh-huh. amazing stories, because I think that's so much more telling than saying, here's something, you know, that like the Jewish community on the whole day. Right. Like, who's the all-star team? Ooh, love it. Okay, so Maimonides is definitely on the all-star team. But as I said, I want to talk less about him. Uh-huh. One person I want to talk about, very loyal listeners to the podcast will recognize this name because we mentioned him in our episode about the Khazars, but a man by the name of Hastai Ibn Shaprut. Yes. When we talked about him in season one, we said he had an amazing name. And I said, because I went back and listened to it, I said, we could do a whole episode just on this guy. And we're still not doing a whole episode. You manifested it yeah. into being. Yeah, but now now we're Amazing. giving Hastai Ibn Shaprut his due. So what was he about? Yeah, everything. He was a polymath. He could do it all. Scholar, physician, diplomat, patron of science and literature. Started out as a court physician, which was really important at that time. It's very hard to imagine now because the White House doctor is not an important member of court. But back then it was very different. Uh-huh. So he starts out as court physician and through that eventually does really become the right-hand man of the caliph of Cordoba and basically ends up kind of running the caliph's foreign affairs, negotiating wow. treaties and doing all sorts of things. This is an incredible story. He's able to broker a deal with a woman named Toda of Pamplona. Her family and her kingdom, Leon, had been in a long-standing Feud isn't the right word. I don't know. I guess like 
a conflict of many years uh, between Lyon and Cordoba. But crisis in Lyon, this woman, Toda, her grandson, Sancho of Lyon, was deposed by the nobles. Side note, he was deposed in part, at least, because of his great obesity. They felt he could no longer adequately serve as king of Lyon. Okay, so her son was deposed. Her grandson. So she Uh wants to return him to the throne and she could use the caliph's help. And Hastai is able to convince her to set aside their feud. And he says, if you come to the caliph and personally ask for his help, despite this longstanding feud, he will help you and can restore your grandson to the throne. He's saying that he knows that he can convince the caliph to say yes to that. She comes before the caliph, prostrates herself before him, asks for his help. The caliph helps. Sancho is placed back on his throne. Um, uh-huh. And Hastai, channeling his physician, doctor, medicine side, is able to help King Sancho with some sort of 10th century weight loss regimen. Wow. That it seems like did work to some extent, possibly. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so he's negotiating the treaty that puts a king back in power. That is high-level stuff. So he's a jack-of-all-trades. He is, right? But while he's doing these political maneuvers, he's also heavily involved in the world of Jewish scholarship. He's sending money from Spain to the Babylonian academies at Sura and Pumpedita. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's moving scholars from Babylonia to Spain and creating new academies of Jewish learning. And he's making sure that people have access to texts and things like that. And he also sort of becomes a patron and surrounds himself with these Hebrew poets. Poetry is an extremely important art form in Muslim Spain at this time. Uh-huh. And poets are channeling that and writing Hebrew poetry. Hastai has two poets sort of as part of his poetry salon of sorts, uh-huh. one by the name of Menachem ben Saruk and one by the name of Dunash ben Labrat. And the two of them get into a very serious poetry feud. No one can fight like poets can no fight. No one can fight. It seems like this fight got very serious and personal. It's always the artsy kids. Yes. I don't think this was the basis of their fight, but it was definitely a part of it was what place does Arabic meter have in Hebrew poetry? Like, can we write Hebrew poetry? That sounds the way that the popular Arabic poetry of the time was sounding. Age-old question. It is an age-old question. Dunash ben Labrat is incorporating Arabic meter and rhyme forms into his Hebrew poetry. And not just Menachem ben Saruk, but a bunch of others are saying, look, I get that it's popular and I get that people really like it, but don't you think this is drawing us further away from our tradition and towards what the rest of the people around us are enjoying? And isn't there a danger to that? So these dueling poets are both sort of in Chastai Ibn Shafrut's court and the fight gets ugly and personal. And ultimately, Dunash ben Labrat, the one who was incorporating the new form, accuses Ben Saruk of secretly being a Karaite of like not following rabbinic tradition and being part of this group that's considered definitely on the outs a little and bit. undermining rabbinic Judaism. Yes, right. Fascinating. And Menachem ben Saruk ultimately sort of loses his position under Ibn Shapru and is like cast out as everyone comes to embrace the Arabic form 
and like this new type of poetry, which there was skepticism around at first, but I think that's sort of what always happens with any art form is, is there's skepticism around it at first, but ultimately becomes incorporated in a way and used right. to bring greater awareness and beauty to a Jewish expression. And that's how the world evolves. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I understand there being traditionalists and people on the cutting edge, the nouveau poets yeah. who want to change things. Yeah. Oh, very cool. It yeah. really sounds like there was a lot going on here. Yes. And let's talk about another poet, a man by the name of Shmuel Ibn Nagrella, also known as Shmuel okay. Hanagid, which means prince. He has a street in Jerusalem, That I is think. correct. He has a street named for him. He's a Talmudic scholar, grammarian, philologist, soldier, merchant, politician, and serious poet in his own right. So he also can do it all. Who isn't? Who isn't? Yeah. I mean, most generals I know who are also statesmen of the highest level are also writing poetry that like the whole wow. world is thinking carefully about. So they were exporting these ideas. This art that's being created in the Jewish community is spreading. A lot of the poetry is in Hebrew. Uh -huh. So the, the poetry is really just for us, you know? Uh -huh. But there are a lot of other philosophical writings. Again, but like Maimonides, I wish we had time to talk about you, my main man. <laughs> but I want to tell you at least quickly this story of Shmuel Anagi, Shmuel Ibn Abgrela. Okay. There's this legend that he rose to prominence because he was sort of discovered the maidservant of the vizier asked him to write a letter, and then she was so impressed with his letter-writing capabilities, because writing letters really well was a really important skill. So he started writing letters for her, eventually becomes the secretary and writing letters for the vizier, and then becomes an assistant to him. But when the king dies, Shmuel Ibn Agrella positioned himself right and helped the younger son ascend to the throne, even though the older son is the one that usually should have gotten him. And uh -huh. when that younger son becomes king, he makes Shmuel Ibn Agrella vizier and general of the army. Like wow. Head of the Muslim armed forces of this kingdom. Amazing. Which, by the way, is not allowed. Like the Pact of Umar, which says what it is that Jews are, or any dimi are allowed to do, definitely not allowed to be general of the army. Wow. But he definitely was. Interesting. And he... Also, like Hasta Ibn Shabrud, Shmuel Ibn Agrella also is like, helps the king ascend to the throne, has all sorts of political machinations on the side. There's this story where a bunch of guys are talking about some sort of treason or something, and he gets his way into this group, and he says, let's actually meet in my house to talk about our plan for treason. But meanwhile, he's just like spying on them and telling the king what they're saying. And then the king says, let's execute them, and he defends them. And like, now, of course, everyone loves him because he's this like brilliant guy who's just like able to play all sides of a conflict somehow. Fascinating. He was a, a fighter. Like oh, he yeah. was he's actually not participating he's not, right. in He's the... not sitting back in the bunker and like over uh -huh. Zoom watching with that. He leads the army into battle. He is general of this army for 17 years. Wow. Extensive military campaigns, many, many victories among a lot of topics of his poetry. He writes a lot of war poetry which is considered very good war poetry. And she's aware also of just like all of his different talents. He calls himself the David of his age because he's a military leader and a poet. He also writes several books. He writes this book, Ben Tehillim, which is sort of 
like in the style of and after the book of Tehillim, and then later writes another one called Ben Mishlei, and then another one later called Ben Kohelet, where he's sort of imitating the style of those biblical books and giving his perspective at different points in life. Fascinating. So he's a biblical scholar, he's a general, he's a poet, Mm -hmm. he's a statesman, he's a kingmaker. It's like, imagine if Alexander Hamilton didn't die young and like remains. And was also an amazing rapper. Yeah, right. But then like, imagine if in addition to that, Alexander Hamilton also wrote a book explaining the logic of the Talmud called Mavo HaTalmud that's frequently printed in the Talmud as like a great example of a very important rabbinic work. So I have to say fascinated by this. Yeah. How did this end? It starts to fall apart in the 12th century when a much more conservative and oppressive Muslim dynasty begins to take over and Jews lose many of those positions. But Jews still have some opportunities, even under this more heavy-handed Muslim regime, but the reconquista, the reconquering of Spain by Christian armies, which culminates in 1492 with the final surrender to Ferdinand and Isabella, who, as you know, like top anti-Semites of all time. That's quite a claim. I mean, maybe top five. Top top five. They're in the conversation. The golden age definitely ends when the new Christian king and queen of Spain make it illegal to be Jewish and kick out everybody who isn't converting to Christianity. And then Spain goes through an age that, uh, what's the opposite of golden? Tarnished. I think we we might need a stronger word than that, but yes. Costume jewelry. (laughs) What's really interesting is at the time, nobody was saying, this is the golden age of Spanish jewelry. Right. You don't know that until you're out of it. Yeah. La convivencia, the Spanish term for it, this like model of what a society is, that's a term that comes up in like the 19th century. Uh And part of that is as Jews are looking to be emancipated and get greater roles in their societies in Europe in the 1800s, they point to this and say, look how great it was and are very happy to point to how amazing it was. And look at this golden age of Spain. When Jews were allowed, look how much they did, not just for themselves, but look how much they contributed to society. And And let's go back to that. And let's go back to that. Like, you will be better off if you allow all the Jews to have this place. And this notion that Jews, you know, don't just need to be isolated, but can take on all sorts of roles and can be generals and diplomats and all of those things. But then this whole notion is really called into question the golden age of Spanish Jewry and and like how well Jews did under Muslim control when in the middle of the 20th century, all of these Muslim Arab countries expel all their Jews. And there's a series of wars between Arab countries and Israel And there's a lot more skepticism about how well Jews and Muslims can get along. There's what's called the neo-lacrimose, like the new lacrimose is like sad. Tears. Yeah. Um, Like this new way of looking at it actually lets now kind of re-examine and think about how bad things were for Jews in Muslim Spain. And it it feels a little bit to me at points like that's oversell. Like it's, I mean, there was definitely violence. There was persecution, there was anti-Semitism, Jews did not have all the opportunities in the world, but a little bit it's a reaction to 
the overblown notion that this was the greatest thing ever. Like, no, there were definitely bad parts to it. Well, I mean, the things that survive are the things that were well-known and quote-unquote worth keeping. Yeah. So the stories that persist are the stories of the successful Uh people who served in court and wrote these books. Mm -hmm. So it certainly is very possible to me that the stories of those who were suffering did not get transmitted in the same Mm way that these other stories are. Mm -hmm. And not to add any level of controversy to this, (laughs) have you ever seen the movie Midnight in Paris? A long time ago, but yes. So in the movie Midnight in Paris, directed by someone controversial, Mm -hmm. Owen Wilson's character wants to live in 1920s Paris because he thinks that that is the best ever era. Mm -hmm. And when he's transported to 1920s Paris, he meets a woman who doesn't understand why he's glamorizing that particular age. Mm -hmm. And she wants to go back another several decades herself to La Belle Epoque. Mm -hmm. And he comes to realize, obviously, that everyone faces discontent in their own era. Mm -hmm. But that is really what I'm thinking about here in that obviously you don't know that you're living in the golden age while you're living in it. We have rose-colored glasses when it comes to looking at the past. Yeah, the way we view the past always shapes the way we view the present and the way we view the present always shapes the way we view the past. Like it's easy to look back now and glamorize it and I think, wow, that's so amazing that there were characters like this who were able to do both of these things that it seems so impossible to do today. And then you remember that they didn't have indoor plumbing. (laughs) I think it is easy for us, particularly in light of what you mentioned, the eviction of Jews from Muslim-led countries in the 20th century tends to blind us to the fact that for so much of our history, Jews and Muslims lived in symbiotic harmony in a lot of places in the world. And Mm -hmm complimented one another really, really nicely. Uh-huh. The one other person I also wish we had time for it is Kasmuna, who is a female poet of great importance. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm assuming that women's literacy was not at its height at this time. She was the female poet. Was she married by any chance? Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm just wondering if the view at the time was you could be a wife and mother mm-hmm. or you could be a prolific artist. You could be a general physician, grammarian, statesman, and a poet, but you can't be a wife and mother and a poet, y'all. Come on. Right. Thank you for listening to Jewish History Nerds, a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you like this show, subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And while you're at it, give us five stars and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, be in touch. Write to us at nerds at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner. Our education lead is Dr. Henry Abramson. Audio was edited by Rob Perra and were produced by me, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening. See you next week.